Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. I'm Nemo. And I'm Jasmine. And we are so excited to be in person today for the first time since 2022 and then back in D.C. for the first time since 2021. Um, and if you listen to those dates, you can tell we've been rocking for a long time. Um, and so we're happy to be moving and grooving with season four. Um, today we are at Agway Studios um, based in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Uh, you can check them out on Instagram and TikTok. Um, and the beautiful content that you see today is provided by Call the Shots Images based in Hyattsville, Maryland as well. So we love Fiji County, I guess. We do, because we recorded in Hyattsville last time, too, so. We were in L.A. in 2022. That was for season three. We talked about the future of work, and so I'm excited to be here with you in D.C. to talk about the economic impact of Beyonce. But before we get into that, I think we have to acknowledge the Better Planners podcast that's sponsored by the Oregon American Planning Association. They did an episode called The Taylor Swift Effect of Transit. And they talked about the impact of Taylor Swift and a bunch of different transit agencies for her world tour that was in the U.S. And now, did you did you see Beyonce this summer? I saw Beyonce, but I did not see Taylor Swift. But I know you have seen. We are not uh, anti Taylor Swift. We just I'm just a Beyonce. But Nima has been to a Taylor Swift. I concert. have been to a Taylor Swift concert, but I um, I was not at the Renaissance World Tour um, this summer uh, due to a prior life obligation. I went in L.A. On her birthday show. So I got to see Diana Ross and Kendrick Lamar. And I cried as soon as she came out. Mm -hmm. Because it was her birthday, she came out singing Flaws and All. And that's just a, it's just a good song. Like, I'm a train wreck in the morning. Um, so obviously, um, we are not just an entertainment and music podcast, but we try to bring topics that relate to your daily life and public space. So what are we talking about today? So today we're going to be talking about the economic impact of the Beyonce Renaissance World Tour. And in particular, we're going to be talking about the impact on transit, hotels, the larger economy, and how that relates to city planning. The goal for the episode is one, to help realize how entertainment, media, talent, pop culture really does intersect with urban planning. They're not separate things. These things all happen in, in space and public space. But also what lessons can planners and architects and city designers kind of take away from the way people travel to and from both the Beyonce concert and the Taylor Swift concert? Right, because we know a lot of people spent their hard earned not just on the concert ticket, but traveling, hotels. Silver. <laughs> Anything silver to disco balls to match the theme. Um, and, you know, it's not just that you you spend those resources when you're also doing other day to day tasks. So using the concert as a backdrop, how to understand the policies that have happened decades ago that are impacting the way you're able to move around in public space today and what uh, choices you have to make as well. Mm -hmm. um, and this was an international tour. Um, so, uh, what were some of the stats on truly the like impact that yeah. the concert made? So it was a summer tour. So it ran from May 10th to October 1st in 2023, starting in Europe. And then after July 4, she came to the U S. Um, so kind of the summer of Renaissance across 10 countries, there were, um, eight in Europe, Canada, and the United States within the U S they were showing 19 cities, basically in about 30 States. 2.7 million attendees, just like almost 3 million people attending the show, both in the U.S. and Europe and in Canada, and 56 shows in total. To keep going on that, she generated $579 million in revenue. That's the highest of any female artist since Madonna in 2009. 
on a per show basis, she's the highest grossing ever. Male, female, it doesn't matter. That's 10.3 million a show. And that, and you know, the numbers don't lie, but media, they be lying because Taylor Swift got person of the year. And while her tour also had impact, and again, I, I'm not the one to compare or advocate, but we're going to get into a little bit later about how um, Black women's impact is also perceived. Yeah. The, uh, so. And then overall in the economy, the New York Times is reporting $4.5 billion. Like I mentioned, that's the same as the 2008 Olympics on Beijing. So you're thinking about not just the ticket purchases, but traveling to the venues, right? So whether you flew, took a car, took a plane, took a bus, those are tickets purchased. Outfits that she purchased, she wanted us all to wear silver. We all wore silver. Um, her staff, right? she has to pay, I think her her tour staff is about 300 people. Those people all have jobs and kids and families. Her traveling herself, getting between these places, right? So when you think about what is economic impact, those are all the things that factor into it, not just the ticket sales. Right. And so thinking about how to move 2.3 million people um, in various types of cities with various uh, transportation availability, we wanted to share a little bit about the transit accommodations that different cities and jurisdictions made to accommodate for the Beyonce concert. And a lot of times they uh, would see what one city did or would see what another concert did and was like, okay, well, how can we adjust and make this better? Um, so to go down for a few cities, uh, Santa Clara, California, Levi Stadium, uh, all of their transit providers, their light rail, their um, rapid transit, and also Caltrain, which is a commuter rail, added service. Um, and one of the things they stated was they wanted a no concert goer left behind mm -hmm. mentality. Um, so that meant adding 30% more service on light rail and extra buses. Um, and that stadium, like other stadiums, also has a curfew. So they're extending service beyond their regular hours, which a lot of them can only do for special events. Um, and... Uh, one thing specifically about that stadium and their transit options is that, as I said, they're all different providers. So what does no no concert goer left behind look like when you get off one platform yeah. and then have to travel to a completely other platform? It might be across the street. It might be down the block um, to get to that location. And so the providers is an important piece. So if you think about Santa Clara, which is um, in the Bay Area, they have BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit. That runs like... Oakland, Richmond, Berkeley, San Francisco. Then they have Santa Clara Valley Transit, which is a whole separate route. You need a new, a different ticket, a different form of payment, different platform. One's above ground, one's underground, just like all different. So. And I'm just going to try to teleport at that point or like, I don't know, wait for it. You know, you might just consider other options when you have to do that when mm -hmm. it's not all um, simultaneous. Next up, we have FedExville, which is just around the corner. Just around the corner. <laughs> just around the corner. Um, and they made a lot of uh, ripples in the news that uh, it was announced that Beyonce paid an extra $100,000 to extend service at the Morgan Boulevard station, mm -hmm. which is a mile away from the actual FedExville. Um, that was the fine print that nobody wanted mm -hmm. to talk about. So even though Transit and, you know, WebMata Metro in the D.C. area had agreed to that extension, what about the physical accessibility of having to transport yourself a mile? I don't know. Uh, I think we saw that there might have been some shuttles. Yeah, but that's usually, another step, you know. Before, like, football games. I don't know what the team is called. The Washington team. Commander. Whatever they are. Team Washington. They usually have a shuttle for games. So I'm assuming they had a shuttle also and just added. Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe that's just my own, uh, you know, able-bodied mindset. When I did go to a commander's game, I didn't see that, that shuttle. All I saw was people. Very shuttle. All I saw was people in groves trekking. Not to mention that it rained. 
pour down rain the second night. But to get into some of the numbers for that, uh, that Saturday show, when looking at 2022 numbers, they saw a over 1,000% increase wow. in the people tapping to get into the station. And then on Sunday, they saw a over 2,000% increase just to look at that same weekend a year prior. So that just shows people were using Metro. And that might've been some people who had never used Metro before, but were like, I need to get to this concert. I need to have options. I don't want to be stressed about parking. Um, And so using the station, regardless of whether that meant having to walk or get creative about their options afterwards. Um, Next up, NRG Stadium in Harris County um, in Houston. Uh, So they added additional trains three hours before each performance. And they also added um, Beehive buses to try to reduce the wait time. So that's one of the shuttles that would go Mm -hmm. in between the light rails as well. Um, And uh, what from their data, they saw only a 13% increase overall from their 2022 service. Okay. Um, and they that's established, a right? That's a, that's a lot for Texas. That's saying a lot for y'all. Just giving them a little bit, a little bit more credit. And they also acknowledged in their data that they had more sporting events that month compared to the year before. Mm. And the, I think two Beyonce shows, they also acknowledged. Um, and then, so in Atlanta, uh, Uh (laughs) Um, Yes, for uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, uh, they do have a station there directly. Yeah. Um, And so they added service uh, two hours before the show and then having a dedicated shuttle between the Five Point Station. Um, Their ridership data was limited, um, as well as uh, the MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Not the... Okay. Yeah. So MetLife actually has the largest stadium capacity out of the entire U.S. Um, And so... uh, and I'll let, J- I'll let Jasmine talk a little bit more about how to get to the MetLife Stadium. Well, I was going to go back to Atlanta. So the station that's directly across from Mercedes-Benz, I'm pretty sure is um, Vine Street Station. And you can walk directly from there. But the way Atlanta's transit set up is kind of like a cross. And so that station is their east-west line. So getting people to the five-point stations, which is a little more downtown, means that's the hub. That's the hub where the cross intersects. Mm-hmm. So from there, you can go northeast, you can go southeast, you can go southwest. So I think that's cool that they not only let you, okay, you have to get on this one line, which will take you east and west. We'll also get you on the bus to the hub where you could go all different directions. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point to think about where those transfer mm-hmm. and acknowledging where people are coming from, especially MARTA being one that somewhat connects the suburbs yeah. into the city as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, thinking about, as I mentioned, people who may not usually take transit in their daily life were coming in droves, knowing that that was an option for the concert. Um, and so thinking about who was at the Beyonce concert, Yelp published a consumer report to see what searches were increased, uh, during the Beyonce tour to see, you know, to try to get an idea of who may have been in the audience. And so, for instance, LGBTQ-owned businesses showed a 194% increase in searches. Women-owned businesses had a 21% increase for shopping. And Black-owned businesses showed a 14% increase. Now, when you think about who truly is on transit, the um, American Public Transportation Association, their data shows that 40% of transit users are white. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when you look at the various groups of people of color, collectively, they make up 60%. And with 24% of that being Black Americans. Um, But it's also important to know, based on census data for the year this was published, um, Black people made up 12% of the U.S. population, but are double that when you think about transit ridership Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about what the perceptions are for transit and then who they were created for. Yeah, and I think the transit ridership piece is interesting because... 
who rides transit versus who conceptually transit is designed for is different. I think most cities transit service is designed for the nine to fiver. Mm -hmm. That's why you see, we'll push out all the train service between seven and nine. And then in the middle of the day, it's kind of like a dipping service. And then it'll be a fast pace again at five, six and seven. And then at eight o'clock, there's not that much service. And so, but how does that relate to who's actually on the train? Like, is this really servicing the people who need to ride in? I think the demographics of Beyonce concert goers as opposed to the everyday rider was unique. And then I think another element of it is, you know, the Renaissance show and the album was really about trans LGBTQ women's rights. Like it had a lot of that energy, that house music vibe is like something that's very common and like voguing and all of that stuff. But those riders, right. Women, trans men, trans women, and members of the LGBTQ community have a lot of safety concerns when riding transit. It's very well documented. FHWA, which is the Federal Highway Administration, which is like over FTA and all the different other transit providers. APTA, which is American Public Transit Association, ULI, APA, just name them, have all done research on women's perception of transit safety. And and I think the perceived notion of safety versus whether or not you're the victim is even more like if I perceive that something is dangerous to me, whether or not something's ever happened to me or someone that I know, that's going to change my travel patterns. If I feel that waiting at that bus stop puts me at risk, I'm not going to wait at that stop. Yeah, like I'm not going to go. I'm going to try to find other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another point, too, is that 55 uh, percent of trans users are women um, and the uh, are often having to make non-traditional trips for whether that be for family care um, or uh, work uh, work obligations um, that are outside of that nine to five. Um, so that's definitely a good point in terms of, okay, this is being presented as an option even for the concert, but when it's ending at midnight, yeah. <laughs> 11 p.m., it's dangerous. how are they actually um, going to get there? And so some of the design features that thinking about, okay, how can city planners and transit planners better design their networks for women, for members of the just vulnerable populations in general? Mm-hmm. Lighting. It's amazing what a good street light will do. Like if I can see out, that'll make me feel a lot safer than if the light is just right here at the bus stop and right. I can't really see my back, my side, my left, my right. Um, the location of bus stops, trying to locate them in more activated areas, not just like in the back corner of the street. That might not be the best place for one. Reliable wait time information. If I pull up to the station and I have no idea when, where, if it just left, if it's coming in an hour, if it's going to be here 15 minutes, that makes a difference. And then working with fewer advertisements. So, you know, you'll see a bus and the whole thing will be covered with ads. Like I can't really see out the window. I can't perceive if I'm missing my stop or anything like that. And then having staff at the stops. And I think this is a part where I think transit agencies like, I'm in Jersey. I'm in New York often. They love putting in an officer. Well, as a black person, that doesn't make me feel safer. Like if it's a staff member, an MTA staff member, that makes me feel good. But I don't think we need a higher police presence. I don't think that makes most people of color any more comfortable. Yeah, I'm not. I will walk further to go to a station manager in their little covered part to ask a question. And the man who's holding the gun Mm -hmm. on his head. And they don't be knowing. Yeah. No, they got off. They got off on their on their duty. Um, I think another point to think about, even with technology, a lot of the things you mentioned have been able to come along to make technology easier. We can see the bus moving on our phones. We can, you know, like you said, look up at the the wait times. 
Um, another thing with technology is to keep our ride sharing. And there's a lot of informal transportation um, ride sharing that it, that is happening. One specifically for the Beyonce concert was called Rally. And so they partnered with cities and different motorboat motor motor bus coaches okay. um, to have micro stops across the city. So you could, you know, log onto that platform, see if there's a stop in your area and be able to get a ride on that shut and that, you know, larger, comfortable, you know, motor, uh, motor coach uh, bus to be able to get to the concert as another option. If, you know, which is more door to probably closer to door to door or flexible to where you may live. Um, if getting off at a stop and walking, it doesn't work because, most people don't necessarily live near transit. Yeah, I mean, and walking, even if the stop is three blocks, walking three blocks at midnight is not fun for anybody. No. You talked about MetLife Stadium, which is near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. And that makes me think about NFL stadiums and their geographic location, whether they're in city, kind of urban core areas, or if they're in more suburban areas like FedEx Field. And I think that also plays a role in like how accessible the station is. Right. Because if the station, if the stadium is out there, right, Levi Stadium moved from San Francisco down to Santa Clara. FedEx Field was that RFK? Before, So that was like urban core. Like there's a bunch of stops over there. They moved all the way to Maryland. Um, MetLife is in the wetlands of New Jersey, just there. For the Meadowlands? <laughs> but the actual wetlands. Yeah, like the Meadowlands are actually wetlands. Oh. Like if you drive through there, it's low and flat and wet and damp. Mm -hmm. Like it's really just a cheap land to put stadiums. Wow. Um, and so when you think about transit and stadium location, I wanted to just explore, like, what are the most transit accessible stadiums? Because it does play a role in, even if it's just a football game, right? Those stadiums hold 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people. What is the only good way to move all them people is on a train. Like, you really want us to bring 50,000 cars through here? They're like, yes, that's why we created the roads <laughs> for you to drive on in your car. Yeah, and then, I mean, at FedEx Field in particular, it's like a sea of parking mm -hmm. outside of it. But... Lumenfield in Seattle, which I know you're from the Seattle area, but you have said you've never been. No, I was, a, I was a lesson when I was coming out of college. And then M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore are the only two stations with a hundred percent transit score. So walk score by Redfin, which we've talked about before on the show has a walk score rating, a transit score rating, and a bikeability rating. And so we just plugged in the addresses of these different football stadiums to see what their scores were. So Seattle and Baltimore are 100. That means the station is accessible to the stadium. Mercedes-Benz in Atlanta had like an 81. I think that's because you'll take a pedestrian bridge like over a six-lane highway to get to the station. But that's that's, alone. that's not like Atlanta. <laughs> and then Chicago Soldier Field where the Bears play was an 80 um, score. Now some were real bad poor cleveland 24 percent transit score mm. miami they ain't even tried 39 indianapolis 55 and then sofi which is where i saw the concert was only at 54 now sofi stadium has both sofi the youtube theater um the forum and then they're building the clippers arena so you're about to have five event venues Clustered. And, and I can't take the train to nary of one of them. It's just a lack. It's just a lack of, of options. But I think that does play a role in like which stations were, which concerts had a lot of ridership to the station. Yeah. And transit, I think it's also important to 
know that transit is usually seen as the most affordable option. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, as we mentioned, people traveled far, um, they flew, they booked hotels. And so transportation is one of those things that they wanted to be the last thing that they had to consider or think about as another additional expense. Um, but aside from those, what other fine, what do, what do we see in the financial resources that people spent? How did that end up showing up for the city's revenue? Yeah. So, I mean, it's important to realize the concert was not a cheap, like you couldn't just pull up hundred dollars, hundred fifty and get you a good seat. Um, you needed to spend some money. Google says the average price was $550. Okay. I don't believe Google. Um, my ticket was about $400 and I didn't have a great seat. So I know if you were sitting even closer, it was substantially more than that. But that plays a role into hotels. I think in a lot of instances, it was cheaper for people to fly from a major city like LA or New York um, to New Orleans or Chicago or Charlotte to see the concert because the price of a ticket, a flight, and getting to the hotel was cheaper than just buying your ticket in LA. I think that's something that really came into play. And so CoStar and STR, which is CoStar's like hospitality arm, they looked at the impact of Beyonce on hotels. And so New Orleans, like I mentioned, and Charlotte were the two U.S. cities where their rev par increased greater than 50% on the night of a show. On average in the U.S. markets, um, the hotels had a 5% rev par increase. And so your next question should be, what the heck is rev par? I didn't know what it was. So it's revenue per available room. It's a metric used in the hospitality industry to measure a hotel's performance. It basically takes the total room revenue and divides it by the number of rooms available. And so as your rev par increases, it means that the revenue that you're receiving for each room increase, there's a premium for all of these rooms. And so if you compare rev par for the night of the Beyonce show, say August 1st, compared to August 1st of last year, or maybe August 31st of this year, you can see how much her impact had on your room prices. And so in Charlotte, the increase was $49 a room. In New Orleans, it was $41 a room. And there was an even bigger impact in Europe, right? So she did fewer shows in Europe. And she did, I think it was eight different countries. Yeah. And I feel like the, you you know, a lot of people in the States had justified going over to Europe Mm. to see the concert because they're like, well, that everything ended up being cheaper than trying to see it in a major city. So I think that explains why they saw a bigger jump in hotels, you know, especially again, the concert itself, not being cheap. It's attracting people who have a certain means Mm -hmm. and lifestyle to where that could be an option. Payment excursion, right? Like the same way that you might travel to New Orleans for essence fest, or you might travel for the Super Bowl. It became one of those things where I'll buy a plane ticket. I'll make a trip out of it. Oh, my sister lives in Charlotte. I'll go see my family for the weekend and go to the concert. Like it became a retreat in a way. And so that's why I think you see that impact in the U.S. in those smaller markets because the tickets were cheaper and it made sense financially to fly to those shows. Yeah. And uh, uh, when thinking about the economic impact, uh, as we were saying earlier, this is a Black woman who is drawn taking people out of their homes, away from their jobs, away from their family to create this experience. And then, you know, being able to see the impact that it's having on cities. And there was a quote and it was for Taylor Swift, but I think it's also relevant for um, 
uh, for Beyonce too, but they said, uh, you know, congrats Taylor Swift on being named Times Person of the Year in part for getting people back on public transit in cities where she performed and helping to boost the U.S. economy by generating more than $5 billion in local economic activity across the country. And so, again, even just being two women in the country, creating this sort of movement that created a buzz throughout the entire summer mm-hmm. um, is impactful. And then also being able to see that in the numbers. Yeah, I mean, and as a Black woman doing all of this in America, it's just, you just have to gain recognize, gain like, wow, you go, girl. Mm-hmm. I think, though... And you didn't see the movie yet, the Renaissance movie. Okay, so in the movie, there's a scene. So just like a lot of behind the scenes. In the movie, there's a scene where she's talking to some videographer on her staff or something and trying to get the lighting and something right for her show. And they're like, oh, we we can't get that camera. Like, we don't have access. That camera doesn't exist, for example. And so she's like, okay. Well, she goes and looks it up. And she's like, actually, like, the camera's right here. Like, it does exist. And it's like... Even when she's generating all of this money to the economy, she's paying this man's salary for him to be on tour. People still lie and disrespect you and act like what you want, what you care about as a black woman doesn't matter. And so I think that's an important piece for us to talk about here on this episode is like the economic impact of black women in America. And so just some high level numbers. In 1980, 15% of black women aged 24 to 34 had a four-year college degree. In 2015, the number is up to 25%, so a quarter. Um, And black women are the highest percentage of black people. So if you compare black women and black men, we have the highest in every degree level. Associates, got it. Bachelors, got it. Masters, got it. PhD, got it. And then, this is the number that I thought was interesting. Black women-owned businesses make up 40% 40% of all entrepreneur, all female entrepreneurs. Yeah. That's insane. Right. I don't, I don't know what the number of our population, like in the U S but I know it's not 40% of the U S population out of all female entrepreneurs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Out of all female entrepreneurs, 40% are black women. Now that comes with their challenges, right? Some of their businesses are smaller. They might not be a large CEO of a larger company. They might just be owning a daycare, a beauty supply store, a baby shop, but it's still a entrepreneurship. You're still in control of your own salary and all of that stuff. Yeah. And something we were talking about um, yesterday is, and we did an episode on this um, in season two, uh, Tracing the Dream, uh, looking at uh, the uh, civil rights movement and what using uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s words and his vision as a comparison of what socioeconomic status um, uh, Black people in the U.S. are currently at. Um, so check that episode out. Uh, but I think it also relates to this in uh, uh, in bringing it back to media of what they show of black women and men um, and how we look at ourselves. I think I would hope that whoever's listening, maybe if they're a young person or still thinking about what their vision is for their life, they can hear these stats and know that there are other people out there who look like them doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hear that a lot from the inspiration people got from the concert. It's like, if Beyonce is working this hard, I need to step it up in yeah. my life too. Um, and so I think looking at that as an example and also seeing the stats of what black women are doing in this country, I would hope would be an example for, you know, anybody, anybody listening. And what does, do you feel like planning right now is planning for black people, whether that's black women, black men, just minorities in general? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of lip service. Um, I think it's been a slow progression. I think we're in a good place to now get to, okay, well, 
we're all using the language. We're all saying equity. We're all mm-hmm. saying diversity, equity, and inclusion. But what does that look like in practice? And I think 2020 was a term where people started to try to put their money and investments um, where their mouth is. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in terms of the Department of Transportation and what they're doing for equity. Um, but I think planning as a field um, uh, and the purpose of it, it's hard to say, are they planning for a lot of the groups we've mentioned in this episode, that being LGBTQ, Black women, um, Black people, knowing the historical system was not mm-hmm. created for them. So there's so much like undoing and pulling from the system that has to happen. Yeah. We basically have to go through and like, just like yank all this out to make, to get it to where we, where we want it to be a better, a better future. Um, but I am inspired. I think even just being able to talk about, okay, what is the historical patterns, even knowing that, uh, with USDOT, for instance, looking at construction contracts and engineering contracts in fiscal year, 2020, black people only made up 1.4% of those contractors. Wow. Like that's not right. Mm-hmm. So say it and name it and then we can do better. So I think that inspires me that we're on the right track of getting to the other side of the hill. Yeah. And we always talk about money on this podcast. Money run the world. And so, but I think beyond money, it's services also, right? You, the part of the reason why there's no train at SoFi Stadium is because it's in Inglewood. Mm. Talk about it. Period. Like, there's nothing else to say. Like, you also haven't provided services to where you need, where you have services. Part of the reason why, you know, I talk about this all the time. New York City Parks Department and their park equity plan, part of the reason why they had to go back in the inner boroughs of Brooklyn deep in the Bronx, deep in Queens and redo these parks because they sat down and looked at their numbers and said, wait a minute, we've redone this park in Manhattan six times in the last 35 years. And this park in Queens hasn't been touched since 1945. Who's, who's in charge? You're right. What is like that saying something about not only where you're spending your money, but where you are attending to needs. Right. If a park has already been remodeled twice in three decades, does it really need another one just because a new jungle gym is out? Like, well, they probably right. had someone in their neighborhood who complained about one broken thing and was able to have the resources and the access mm-hmm. and the time to justify why they needed an improvement where uh, the distrust for government and public services from black residents would not elicit that same sort of response of like, mm-hmm. well, let me complain or let me, you know, even though their, uh, their condition may be so much worse and like, mm-hmm. And from the research is, but being able to ask and receive, it's the audacity of white people that is what just, uh, you know, yeah, this is, they're, they're and, it's a, and it's a lot of, they don't listen, right? So yeah. if you have, you're asking for something, they meaning the powers that be, city planners, engineers, the planning department, the building department, the permitting department, the parks and recreation department, the transit department, you complain, I need this service and it's filed away. Yeah. And so how many times are you expecting someone to keep going and begging and begging and asking you for not asking you for something that's outside of your job description, right? Or the like budget that's already, or the budget that's already allocated. Um, so we've talked about both of those things a lot in our episode. We talked about the budget, which is where the money reside episode. And then we've also talked about women's fear in transit in our gender episode. Yeah. And I think in both, uh, our episode on how to make community engagement work for you and inclusive transportation. We talk a lot about 
okay, you're seeing these issues in your community. What tools can you mm-hmm. do to, to stand up? Um, so uh, if you're hearing this and wanting to get more information, because you're like, yeah, my park isn't attractive, or oh, I can't sit there and it's dirty or it smells like you, there are, uh, there are options uh, that, that can work for you. And now, Jasmine, you were in Paris recently. Mm-hmm. Um, can you say, can you show a little French, a little French for us? Run, 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 um, renaissance. I think we keep seeing the word and we keep misspelling it. Misspelling it every time. I don't know. When did we spell, when did we use that word in common? Like, like this never only to talk about the Harlem Renaissance in, yeah. my, in my world. Renaissance is a French word meaning rebirth. And so right now we're going to take this episode in a slightly different direction and think about the rebirth that's happening in urban planning and the rebirth that's happening in cities, right? So we've all been through the COVID-19 pandemic and 2023 kind of felt like the first full non-COVID year, even though some people might've got COVID, it really felt like the first year. It really did feel like the first year. It felt like everyone was trying to catch up to what we lost that was lost and i'm like in this economy we probably said that on multiple episodes it's like a double whammy yeah so what are some of the areas in the built environment that are having a rebirth right what are some ways that we're now reevaluating our cities now we've been inside for a year 18 months depending on where you live two weeks and thinking about okay we're not having one of our places to be better and the first thing that kind of came to my mind was open space and public space. We saw during the pandemic, a lot of play streets, Mm -hmm. cities doing like, okay, we're going to close off this street and let everybody just play. And a lot of that has remained. You go to New York, you go to Philly, they still have those streets sectioned off and just allowing people to just walk and pedestrians, which is something I also saw a lot in Paris. I think the other big thing for planners and city planners in particular is downtowns in office, right? We really, everyone was working, if you could, and your job was not a essential, you didn't need to be in person, which we respect and we appreciate the people who were there every single day, mask on, all of that stuff. I'm at home a lot. And if I feel like, you know, I want to go, I'm home. If my maintenance man is coming, I'm home. And so the office itself has not been as important as it used to be. And so nationwide right now, office vacancies are around 17%. And that is a pretty stark number for some markets, right? But we have to reimagine our downtowns. And I think that's something city planning is also going through also is like, okay, well, we have these office buildings that are mostly vacant. And what are we going to do with them? How else can we better position them? Is it good for us to keep the building up and turn it into housing? Can we use it as doctor's office space, right? I think it's also important to realize like not all offices is going there's some spaces that need to be utilized but most of the time and even if offices aren't completely vacant they're downsizing completely and so that's the area where planning is reevaluating what's going on yeah and i think that even um with uh office spaces my thoughts are always like Y'all didn't see this coming. Like it took a global pandemic to have to uh, get, uh, try to start getting creative. Um, And I think now it's getting past a lot of the bureaucracy and the politics Mm -hmm. to reimagine a lot of those, um, a lot of those downtown spaces. And we spent a lot of time in this episode talking about um, transit as well and thinking about what the future of transit looks like because those people who were going to the offices on their 
commuter rails um, systems, the ridership is down. And these systems cannot pay for themselves. Mm -hmm. There is maintenance. There is uh, the actual structures of the buses and the trains um, that they haven't been able to recoup in ridership and fares alone. Yeah. And I mean... I think most transit operators operate at a deficit and there's always some subsidizing that comes from the local government or the state government. And I think we've gotten pretty used to that, right? It's a very expensive system, Mm -hmm. though the staff needs to be paid adequately and all of that stuff. But I do think it's worthwhile thinking about, okay, well, knowing that office, right, our downtown core might look different. It might have more homes. People might not be working a more traditional nine to five. They might be using other spaces. How can we tweak that service? Does it still make sense for us to send out five trains at six in the morning and one at one o'clock in the afternoon? Maybe not. So I I might be going to Target. Yeah, I I might need to get on the trip. And that's something that I think transit has always been more about work utility rather than like personal utility. It doesn't really seem like a good system in most areas for running around and getting things done. If good to go to work, that's one stop. But if I need to go to Target and then to Macy's and then to the grocery store, can I do that on your train? Can I do that on your bus? Yeah. And I think from this episode, especially too, thinking about these one-time events, we hope that all of the like record-breaking stats from the concerts over the summer show how to not just add service for concerts, Mm -hmm. but how to think creatively about all the different uses that people may be taking for transit as well and how to plan for those as much as went into accommodating for a concert, that accommodation should be seen for all groups when they need it the most. Yeah. Um, Another point when thinking about the rebirth and the renaissance of urban planning is technology and looking at the future of artificial Uh, artificial intelligence. And I know AI has been getting thrown around a lot, but I wanted to add a definition um, that uh, uh, from the um, Organization for Economic uh, Development, AI is a system that produces outcomes based on a predefined objective. Mm. The objective for an AI is the translation of a human-defined goal into a mathematical one. Outcomes can be predictions, recommendations, or decisions. And so when thinking about all of the AI tools that can be done for planning and designing cities, the data is there, but one of the fears is that the quality of that data varies. Um, And also if people, the people behind the technology are not careful, AI can also reproduce historical problems and bias um, and really just make history repeat itself because the system itself is predicting based on what's already there. Um, And a lot of countries have released guidelines on AI, um, but the governments themselves are still grappling on how to regulate them Mm -hmm. themselves, too. And some of the tools that uh, to think about, um, there's a tool called Urbanist AI where it takes resident comments and then actually makes them active contributors and like shows them in three in 3D um, as part of the design process. Um, There's also simulation tools to model scenarios for population density, land use, um, and also uh, uh, different scenarios for future development. Like Delve is a real estate tool um, where they can input factors to adjust for um, uh, lighting. They can see, okay, well, how can we get more units based on the amount of sunlight that these buildings get? Um, And they can also factor for quality of life, walkability, transitability, those things that we mentioned as well. I just think whenever I'm thinking about AI, the thing that scares me the most is a defined goal and a a human defined goal. That's scary to me 
because I don't think yet, I think we have talked about equity and planning, but I don't think it is yet fully ingrained into the professionals and the decision makers. And so it's very easy for us to repeat, but also make worse this, the historical injustices. And now, right, when you're doing it on a small scale without all this technology that can implement it in, in three days or just 10 years, that's kind of scary to think about. Yeah. And I think there's also with the thinking about how AI will be taught to engineers, designers, planners, um, there shouldn't be an assumption that simply because it was computer generated that it is right or that it is the correct um, the correct form to use. Um, and then just to close out on the rebirth on that equity point, um, the U.S. Department of Transportation published their equity action plan last year. Um, and there are four key actions. One was wealth creation, power of community, interventions, and expanding access. And so for wealth creation, um, being able to provide technical assistance to small and disadvantaged owned businesses to be able to flip that uh, percentage about only 1.7 and 2.4% of a contract dollars going to black businesses. Um, and then for community, being able to reemphasize the importance of Title VI, the Civil Rights Act, um, and actually reviewing a project for equity considerations before the funding is even out the door. Yeah. Whereas now it seems they're doing that on the back end after the project's already in place and things went up. Yeah. It's like, Wow. Or after the contract has already been selected. Yeah. They're like, oh, let's see how this impacts these protected groups after mm -hmm. after the money is out. Um, and then for interventions, another form of technical assistance to make sure that the investments, once they're out the door, are actually going to the underrepresented and the um, overburdened uh, communities. And I think that word is important to think about because it's easy to say underserved and you think oh they just it just magically happened mm -hmm. that way but they've been historically underserved and as a result they have been burdened yeah strategically and it's time to correct it um, and then for expanding access thinking specifically about affordable transportation and how can we get people to move around from a to b for what's important for them um, while also not having a cost an arm and a leg, as we've discussed all of the costs that yeah. went into the concert, for instance. Um, because the lowest income households spend 37% of their income on transportation, whereas middle income households are only spending 19% of their income on transportation. And in our episode tools to how to gain community engagement to work for you, we talk about the housing and transportation index tool, which is created by the Center for Neighborhood Technology, in which you can enter in like where you live, Philadelphia, D.C., New Orleans, and it will give you an estimate of like what housing costs and what transportation costs. And you can get a percent, you can get a sense of how much of your income and your disposable income will be used on those two expenses, which are for most households, even a single household, your biggest two expenses. Yeah. Well, that. That's we got it. one more thing, Nemo. Before we exit, what is your favorite Beyonce song? I forgot. <laughs> and how does it, and bonus points if it relates at all to urban planning. Yeah, well, I'll say one that stands out to urban planning for me the most uh, from her Lion King album, uh, Find Your Way Back. Okay. Uh, and, uh, I think she uh, she says in the beginning of the song, like, Daddy used to take me on the walk, like, used to hold my hand. Um, and that made me think about uh, safety for her and having that that male figure, which we've talked about, I think, with um, Veronica Davis and in inclusive transportation, thinking about safe routes to school. And in their research, seeing that a lot of male figures were trans were the ones walking students to and from school um, or, you know, an older sibling that was a brother. And so thinking about the gender and safety in public space. 
Um, and she just put in such a nice melody because you can find your way back, whether yeah. there's a sign or, or not. But she trusted that she would find her way back. My favorite. I don't know the name of this song, but my daddy, Alabama, Formation. Mama Louise. Yeah. Formation. Yeah. You mix that Negro with that Creole, make a Texas Bama. So that's my favorite because I think it talks about black migration. Mm-hmm. And I always think about the great migration of African-Americans leaving Southern states and moving to the North and to the West and how we really transformed those cities. We really helped Chicago become a number one city, helped New York become a number one city, helped Oakland become a number one city at the time in the the fifties and sixties. And so our impact on their economy, our impact on their growth and their development has been instrumental in a way that I don't think it really talked about. And I like what she talks about that all the time. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Formation. I, I was at Rutgers and that's so actually mentioned. So it always it always stands a, a good point in my memory. Um, well, you can find us on social media at the number four degrees pod. Um, and we drop episodes every other Tuesday. So thank you all for joining us in person today. Peace out, y'all.